Hear with me, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Good morning. How many of you know what's on the wall of the foyer out there? It's our vision statement, right? And it says, by God's grace, love, by God's spirit, love and grace, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And it fits in with our vision, our mission statement of being an equipping church. We at Cole are here. The pastors are here. The elders are here to equip you for the work of the ministry. That's a biblical concept. We are an equipping church. So our job is to equip you so you can live out your faith and serve God in whatever you do, whatever he calls you to do to serve him. But I know that some of you hear the idea that, oh, I'm called into ministry. Yes, every believer is called into ministry. But what does that mean? What does that service look like? And how how do we get qualified for that? I know some of you hear that and think, yeah, right. I'm just not qualified. I don't have seminary training. I'm not a Bible expert. I don't know a lot of theology. I have too many areas of sin that I still struggle with. I don't know what my spiritual gifts are or my gifts aren't important enough. I can't preach or teach. I don't see any great fruit from my ministry or when I try to help others. So many of us just kind of think, well, I'll just get by because I don't see how God can use me because I'm not qualified for service. Well, let me just say that those things that we think qualify us for service can be tools that God uses, but they are not, not any of those are what qualifies us to serve in God's kingdom. As we'll see in our passage today, in the call of Isaiah, who didn't go to seminary, who didn't have all this Bible training, who didn't have all of that, we'll see that what truly qualifies us for ministry is catching a vision for God as he really is and seeing ourselves as who we really are before him. When that happens, when we catch a vision of him and of ourselves and we see him accurately and see ourselves accurately, then we are ready to be used of God and we're ready to come to him and say, here I am. 
send me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this amazing passage, this vision that Isaiah has, as you qualify him for ministry, may the eyes of our hearts be opened. May our faith, our imaginations be stirred in a way where we see you as we've never seen you before, as high and lifted up. And may we see ourselves in your light, in your glory, more accurately, so that we would be ready to say, here am I. Send me. In Jesus' name, we come before you. Amen. Now, I'll say that you just had this passage read. There are certain passages in Scripture that I will say when, when I come to and I think about teaching that I feel like there's something here that it's like standing on holy ground. And I feel like kicking off my shoes. But instead, I wore a suit today <laughs> as a way of saying, you know, this is holy ground that we are approaching. As Isaiah shares with us, his vision, where God has pulled back that thin veil between heaven and earth. Uh, we know biblically that heaven's all around us. It's not somewhere off. It's, it's everywhere. The spiritual world, God's presence is everywhere. It's all around us, but we just can't see it most of the time. But this is a case in which God pulls back the veil and Isaiah sees through to the very throne room and sees God in a way that changes his life forever. It's, if you read this and then you turn to John 4, I encourage you to do that later today maybe, or excuse me, Revelation 4, where John sees a vision of the heavenly throne room, and you'll see there's many parallels. They kind of see the same vision. They describe it a little differently, but it's the same general vision. And Isaiah records as best he can what he sees and this is meant to remind us and encourage us to live as people of faith, people of imagination. You see, imagination is, is part of faith. It's a gift of God so that we can see with Isaiah the reality that's all around us that we can't see most of the time. We do that how? By faith. By engaging our minds as we picture today, as we look through this passage Picture the very throne room of God and his amazing glory so that we might not get so caught up in the things of the world because we see what really is around us all the time. And this vision changed Isaiah's life. It carried him through the ups and downs of the next 50 to 55 years of ministry. And it can be a great encouragement to us as well. So engage your faith, engage your imaginations as we enter into this passage it begins this way, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the throne. That's significant. It, this time period is very important. He puts it right in time at 740 B.C. And why is this significant right here? Because, see, Uzziah was a good king most of his life. He reigned 52 years over the southern kingdom of Judah, and we're told that he was a godly king. He was a good king. It was a high point in Israel's history where he had many building projects. He won great military victories. Uzziah was a great king, and it was a high point for Judah. But we're told in Second Chronicles 26 that what happened to Uzziah is he became proud. 
Look at what I've done. Look at what a great leader I am. Look at what a great king I am. And so in his pride, he decided, you know what, I'm so great, I'm going to go into the temple and burn incense. Now that was reserved only for the priests. But he thought, I'm pretty great, I can go do this. He went into the temple, started burning incense. The priests were appalled and they said, don't do this. And he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And all of a sudden, God struck him with leprosy. And for the last 10 years of his reign, he was kept in isolation with leprosy because of his pride. He co-reigned with his son, Jotham. But as he dies now, after those 52 years, it was a time in Israel where they were discouraged with man and his leadership. Here was the best king they'd had for a long time, and yet he utterly, completely failed them. The message, I think, to Israel and the message to us as Isaiah gets this vision is that you must not put your hope in human leaders. They will always disappoint you. And I would say that's a pretty timely message for us today, isn't it? We must not put our hope in human leaders for they will always disappoint us. Instead, what we really need as the people of God is to catch a vision for the true king. And that's exactly what God gives Isaiah here. So imagine this scene. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty, exalted. One of our artists pictures it this way with his glory, seated on the throne. Maybe that helps you visualize it, but just use your imaginations and visualize what Isaiah sees here. Lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, literally, this is the hem of his robe. It's not the full train. It's just simply the hem. You see, God is so great and huge and exalted that the whole temple is filled just with the hem. God is so much greater even than the temple, even this heavenly temple or an earthly temple or whatever it might be. He's so much greater. He's glorious. And then you see around the throne... Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. Two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. The word seraph means burning one. These are some kind of angels that are aflame. They're a fire. They're so glorious and bright. And yet they are glorious creatures, but they have to cover their eyes because of the amazing glory of God himself, of Yahweh, the true God. And they cover their feet because they know they're not worthy to be standing in his presence. They're overwhelmed with his greatness and his holiness and his glory. And so it says then that they called to one another. But in the Hebrew, the tense there is they were continuously calling back and forth, back and forth in this heavenly picture. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. Kadosh, he's holy. He's set apart. And as they, in this antiphonal back and forth, Isaiah is overwhelmed by what he hears and what he sees. They declare God's holiness. What is holiness? We, we've been singing that word this morning. It's something we, we sing a lot. But what does it really mean? What do you think of when you think of God's holiness? 
See, it's a word that was used in other nations around Judah at this time. The Babylonian and the Hittite and the Assyrian and the Canaanite religions all used the word holy to describe their God. But what they meant was different than what Judah meant. You see, holy to the other nations was, well, they're God and we're mortal. They're immortal, but we're mortal. But their gods were a whole series of gods, a pantheon of gods who were constantly fighting with one another, having sex with one another. In other words, they were just a projection of what we are as humans projected on the divine, but there was no morality to them at all. But they were holy because they were immortal. But when Isaiah uses that word, when the scriptures use that word, it's a whole different picture because it is divine, immortal versus mortal. But the other aspect of holiness is absolute moral purity, righteousness, blamelessness, holiness. So when they say holy, 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 it it has this picture of the absolute moral purity of God that is so great that the, the seraphim, who are glorious creatures, have to hide their eyes. And as we'll see in a moment, Isaiah is overwhelmed by the vision he sees because of what it says about him in comparison. So to be holy means to be set apart, both in essence as immortal, but also in more moral purity. But note, too, that this is a view that Isaiah has of not just a heavenly throne, But it says the whole earth, the angels say, is full of his glory. His glory fills everything. Isaiah is privileged to see in this vision something that you and I have to accept by faith. And that is that God really is Lord of both heaven and earth. He is Lord of everything. He fills everything. We look around us at our world and we think, what a mess. Where's God? But the reality of our faith is that God fills everything. He, he, he's in everything. He is Lord of everything. And yes, he allows certain things to happen in this world, but he even works through that for his greater purposes. God fills everything. Few of us get this kind of vision like Isaiah had, but we must use our faith to envision it. There, is, there are some who have had visions like this. One is... Blaise Pascal in the 1600s, who was a brilliant Christian philosopher and scientist. He wrote on a piece of paper something that happened in his life, and he put it, he sewed it into the hem of his jacket. And when he died, they found it, and they brought it out. And this is what it says. From about half past ten in the evening to about half an hour after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of philosophers and scholars. Absolute certainty, beyond reason, joy, peace, forgetfulness of the world and everything but God. The world has not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This brilliant man and brilliant writer, he didn't even have words to describe what he'd experienced in seeing God like Isaiah does here that changed his life. Brothers and sisters, this election that's coming up means nothing in the grand scheme of things if God is on the throne, if he's the true king, if he's over everything and is working out his greater purposes 
then we need not fear whatever happens. So catch a vision of him on the throne, the true king. And it says that Isaiah, as he was standing at the threshold of the temple, it began to shake and smoke began to fill the entire temple. The vision of God was so great, it it just he couldn't continue it even. Isaiah really doesn't have words, but he has enough words to overwhelm us if we allow ourselves to enter into what he's experienced and to see the incredible awesomeness of God. And how does Isaiah respond? Whoa, cool, dude. Can we have a selfie, God? (laughs) No. What does he say? Woe is me, for I'm a dead man. Uh, I've seen a vision that is so overwhelming to me that I am just dead. I don't deserve to stand in his presence. I don't deserve to be in the presence of his holiness, his awesomeness, his moral purity. I'm unworthy. I am a dead man. Back in chapter 5, he proclaimed six woes on the nation of Israel, but now he's proclaiming the woe on himself. Woe am I, for I am ruined. I am destroyed. And he says, I'm ruined because I am unclean. I'm impure and my whole community is impure. And notice he he says, my lips are are impure. Why why does he focus on the lips? Well, we don't know exactly for sure. It could be because, as uh, James says, the the, the lips, the mouth, is a burning fire. No one can control it. It's a wild beast. No one can tame it. It's out of control. It's an area where we all sin. But I think he mentions it specifically because I think Isaiah struggled with that in particular, with his mouth. It was a particular area of sin for him. Have you seen God in his holiness? Have you seen him in a way where the immediate response was, I'm unworthy, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess, and here's where I'm a mess. The closer I get to the light, see, the closer we get to the glory of the Lord, all our impurities show and we're more and more aware of how undeserving we are for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and we realize we don't deserve to be in his presence at all. And we are dead unless God acts. See, that's the proper view. Have you ever really seen God in his holiness? The best way to know if you have is if you've been overwhelmed in this way with an awareness of your own sinfulness. And let me say, as Western believers in particular, American believers in particular, we love to focus on God's love, don't we? He is loving. He's amazing. He He's gracious to us. He forgives and we sing songs about his love and we rejoice in his love and we delight in his love. And so we should. But let me say that God's love and the cross of Jesus Christ are meaningless unless we first see God in his holiness. A God who cannot tolerate sin. A God who must judge sin and destroy it because he is so pure and righteous. And if we haven't gotten the vision of God being that kind of God, then we have way too simplistic a view of him. Let me put it this way. Unless we have been stunned by God's holiness, 
we will have a stunted view of God, an inadequate view of God. So just practically, how do we gain this kind of vision of God's holiness and his purity? How, how can we begin to have our eyes open to how awesome God is? Not many of us get the opportunity to have a vision like Isaiah. But let me say, one of the best ways is to read the Old Testament. So many Christians avoid the Old Testament. I, boy, all these sacrifices and God seems so harsh and judgmental and he destroys nations and oh, I don't like that. So I'm just going to stick to, you know, loving God. Well, if you don't enter in and see who God really is in all his holiness and how he cannot tolerate sin and he must judge it. Then the cross is emptied of its meaning. Then oh yeah, God has to forgive me and we don't understand what it costs him to die for us and give us life. So read the Old Testament and see God's intolerance of sin. Stand at Mount Sinai and see the smoke and the fire and tremble with the people in absolute fear because of a holy God. Use your imagination to meditate on his awesomeness as revealed in the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. One thing I've done in the last few years is in my prayer time in the morning, the very first thing I do is focus on God and I focus on his holiness and what that means and spend some time in focusing on how pure and righteous and blameless and awesome he is. And then I focus on how loving and wonderful he is. We need both. We need both to have an adequate view of who God is. So incorporate that into your prayer life. That's an encouragement for you. Another encouragement is to look at nature. Nature does reveal God's glory. We often don't see it, but it fills the whole earth, as the seraphim declare here. I like the wonderful poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that ends this way. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Brothers and sisters, let's not be unaware. Let's see the glory of God in his creation, in his scriptures, by faith in our imaginations. And then finally, an encouragement, if you really want to understand God's glory, ask him. Lord, reveal your glory to me. Open my eyes to how awesome you are, your holiness, your greatness, your purity. So after he is overwhelmed with this, I'm ruined. I'm dead man because of my unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Yahweh Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. At that point, Isaiah, I think, was ready to be struck down by lightning. He knew he deserved death. He was ready to die. And yet what happens is the seraphim grabs an ember from the altar and brings it over and touches his lips. Now, I think at that point he thought it was judgment. It was over. And yet what the seraphim does is he touches his lips and says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now, we don't know what the ember was. It might have been a stone from the altar. It might have been a coal from the altar. I suspect it was part of one of the sacrifices that had been burned up and what was left there. Because for us, brothers and sisters, 
this coal is a picture of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for us, his death for us that touches us and forgives us. As Jesus gave up his life for us, we receive God's grace. And Isaiah receives God's grace here and is overwhelmed with it. Undeserved, unexpected. And so we receive what is undeserved and really should be unexpected forgiveness. God has atoned for and forgiven our sin through the sacrifice of his son. He's paid the highest price. Our perspectives should change. John Oswald in his commentary says this, When we've seen God in this way, we'll know that God owes us nothing. We are not basically nice folks with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. Actually, we are proud, arrogant, self-centered, perverse, cruel, violent rebels in whom the stain of sin and sinfulness goes down to the very last atom of our being. We don't just mess up. We sin. There's a strong likelihood, he goes on to say, that until we come to an understanding of ourselves like this, we will treat the grace of God, his unfailing, undeserved love, as a throwaway item. Well, of course God loves me. That's his job. (laughs) No, it's not his job. In fact, it's unimaginable, unexpected, and indeed unnecessary. It's a wonder of the universe. If we see God as he is and ourselves as we are, then like Isaiah, it will not even occur to us to ask for continued life. Obviously, that's an impossibility. However, to the eternal praise of God, it's not an impossibility. God has found a way, amazing as it is to think of, to satisfy both his holiness and his love on the cross. Isaiah's response to this undeserved grace that he receives is to say, here am I, send me. Out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, God, look what you've given me. I'm ready to go. Here am I, send me. What qualifies us for ministry to be ready to be sent out by God? Seeing God as he really is, both holy and gracious. And seeing ourselves accurately as completely undeserving of his love and grace. That is what qualifies us so that we'll come and say, out of gratitude, send me, send me. And this vision carried Isaiah through the next 50 plus years of his ministry. We don't have time to read the rest of the passage, but I want to highlight three quick, I think, points about ministry that he's trying to teach Isaiah here. Notice what God says. First of all, he says, here's your commission. Here's your job description, Isaiah. Go and tell. Now think about that. His area of greatest weakness was what? His lips. God says, that's the area I'm going to use. Go and tell. You see, God will use you most in your area of weakness. Like Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses for your power is made perfect in Weakness. I know in my own life, the idea that I would be standing in front of people speaking because of my own insecurities and fear of humiliation and looking bad and that I would be doing this is amazing to me because I've felt like such a mush mouth. <laughs> and yet God is using me in my weakness and he'll do the same 
with you. We must come to the end of human goodness and human effort if we're going to be useful to God. Secondly, he goes on to say, oh, by the way, and as you preach, no one's going to respond, Isaiah. In fact, your preaching will harden their hearts. Isn't that an encouragement to keep talking? (laughs) He basically says, you're going to have a 90% failure rate. It won't be successful in the Lord's eyes. So Isaiah's response is in verse 11, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long do I have to keep doing it? And God says, till judgment comes. But I will save a remnant, verse 13. There will be a holy seed that will come out of the stump. You see, God will use us to build his kingdom if we're willing to persevere and keep following him. Isaiah got it. Isaiah became what Israel was supposed to be. Someone who saw God and followed him and served him with his whole life. It's a foretaste of what Messiah was to be 700 years later. And now we get to look back on Messiah and we get to look forward to Messiah coming again and prepare the way for that. Every one of us who knows Jesus is called into ministry, into service for God. And what's our qualification? Simply that we've seen him, we've seen ourselves realistically as sinners in desperate need of grace. We've experienced his grace and therefore God says, I'm calling you. I can use you. Then, when you see yourself and him that way, as one constantly in need of grace, you're qualified to be used by God for his kingdom. We want to celebrate his grace today through communion. Let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning after looking at this passage in your amazing glory and holiness. And we realize we cannot stand before you in our own goodness. In fact, we are dead men and women in ourselves. But we can approach this table as as a place where grace can be gratefully received because you have chosen to pass through our lips, our sinful lips, And enter into us and dwell inside us through your presence, through your Holy Spirit, that we might be made new as new creations in you. And out of our mouth then might come not sin, but praise. So as we approach this table, we gratefully receive the gift of forgiveness, knowing we do not deserve it. But we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.